So if you have a Bible with you, open up to John chapter 17, and I wanted to remind for those of us who regularly attend our church, we have the outline also available, the sermon outline. It's available on our website. If you want to download that, you can follow along, and I'll give you a couple of blanks that you can fill in just to kind of help you stay uh, up on uh, where we are at in the sermon. And so we're in John chapter 17. The title of the sermon this morning is Jesus Prays for His Disciples. Jesus Prays for His Disciples. We're in this incredible chapter, chapter 17 of the Gospel of John. And this morning, I want to read to you verses 6 through 12, and then we'll dive into our time together. The Apostle John writes this. He's speaking, he's writing, obviously, for the Lord Jesus Christ, who throughout this entire chapter is speaking or praying a prayer to God. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have, be- and, and have come to know them in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction." that the scripture might be fulfilled. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to know that you have sent Jesus Christ into this world to be our sure and steady anchor. We thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross and that you were raised from the dead to provide salvation for your own. And thank you, Jesus, for allowing us to look into this prayer, this amazing high priestly prayer that you prayed so many years ago that gives us a little window into your heart. We thank you for the opportunity to to look at this uh, passage together, hopefully to learn much about what you want us to learn so that we can live lives that have been transformed by the glory and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as you know, John 17 is that high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. It is an incredible prayer that Jesus prays for himself, for his disciples, and for you, the church. And we're looking at that outline, how he prayed for himself, verses 1 through 5, 6 through 19. He prays for his disciples, and then 20 through 26, he prays for the church. We talk about, again, this is the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. But did you know that Jesus Christ is not the first high priest? There was, at least humanly speaking, a high priest that existed before Jesus Christ. And so while you're saving your place there in John 17, turn back with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 28 and verse 29. And I want to show you the first human high priest. When did the whole idea of the priestly line begin? Well, it began with Aaron. We have Moses, the deliverer of the children of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land, his brother Moses. They had a sister named Miriam, but Aaron was the first high priest. As you're turning to Exodus 28, 29, I just want to say there is a world of difference between Aaron and Jesus. Obviously, Aaron was fully man. 
while Jesus is fully man and fully God. Aaron did his best, but was far from perfect, while as the Lord Jesus Christ is our only perfect high priest who never sinned. Aaron was instructed to offer the sacrifice of animals, whereas Jesus offered his own life as the sacrifice for our sins. Aaron had to enter into the holy place by the blood of another, while Jesus Christ entered into the holy place by shedding his own blood. There is, however, one incredible similarity between Aaron, the first human high priest, and Jesus Christ, the only divine high priest. And that similarity is, is that they both prayed for the people. You're there, hopefully, in Exodus chapter 28, 29, and it says this, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. Well, what is that verse saying? Basically, it's saying that Aaron prayed for the people that he would go into the holy place and make intercession for the people that God had given to them. In fact, the breast piece that Aaron wore was securely fastened to the ephod, which is a sleeveless garment to be worn by the high priest. This breast piece was a colorful and ornate vest with 12 precious stones, each engraved with the names of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. It was to be made of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and with fine twined linen as well. This breast piece was to be worn by the high priest as he would enter into the holy place. And why, again, was he entering into the most holy place? Well, it was to make sacrifice on behalf of the people, but according to this verse, it was also to remember them in prayer, that the high priest would pray and he would intercede on behalf of the people, that they would receive God's blessings, that they would receive God's grace, that they would receive God's forgiveness. And this began with Aaron in a human practice and continues all down the line, all the way to Jesus Christ, which is really the last high priest and the only divine high priest who by his sacrifice put an end to the priesthood as we know it, at least in that vein, and has now made every believer, in a sense, a priest in his own home, or every believer a priest in his own life, which just simply means you have the opportunity. Peter talks about the priesthood of the believer, which just simply means you have the opportunity to commune with God, not through another person, but through the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here in John 17, Jesus is now praying for his disciples. He's praying for believers of all ages. And what we'll see in this prayer will give us some insight into how Jesus is praying this very day as he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for you at this this very moment. If you want to know how Jesus is praying for you, again, it would be by looking at John chapter 17 would give us the best idea of how to understand probably what's going on at this very moment. And you can rest assured that Jesus's prayers will be heard and they will be answered. You can rest assured that Jesus knows how to pray for you when you don't know how to pray for yourself. Jesus prays in perfect obedience to his Father's will. 
And what a privilege it is for us to take another look this morning at the high priestly prayer of Jesus here in John chapter 17, which was prayed again the night before Jesus's death. This is a sincere prayer. This is a heartfelt prayer. This is a prayer that only Jesus could pray as our high priest. And so today, we're going to look at verses 6 through 12, and we're going to look at a couple of things, actually three things there on our outline. First, we're going to see that Jesus reveals the Father's name to his disciples. Second, we will look at how Jesus prays specifically for his disciples. And then third, we're going to learn how Jesus keeps all of those given to him by the Father. First, let's look at number one, our first heading in the outline. Jesus reveals the Father's name to his disciples. Now, if you were with us last week, we looked at this first subpoint, which it says this, your first blank this morning, if you're taking notes, says Jesus reveals God's character. So we're talking about how Jesus is revealing the Father's name to his disciples. And if you look at chapter six, it says, I have manifested your name to the people. Jesus praying to the Father is saying, I have manifested your name. That first blank again, Jesus reveals God's character. Last week, we looked at Jesus manifesting the Father's name to the people was Jesus revealing God's character. To manifest his name is to reveal God's character. And we looked at God's character, God's nature. We looked at some of the attributes of God, no less than 15. There's more than 15, but I gave you 15 last week. Number one, God is infinite. This means that he is self-existing and without origin. Number two, God is immutable. This means that he never changes. Number three, God is self-sufficient. This means that he has no needs. Number four, God is omnipotent. This means that he's all-powerful. Number five, God is omniscient. This means that God is all-knowing. Number six, God is omnipresent. This means that God is everywhere. Number seven, God is wise. He is full of perfect, unchanging wisdom. Number eight, God is faithful. This means that he is infinitely and unchangingly true. Number nine, God is good. This means that he is infinitely and unchangingly kind and filled with goodwill. Number 10, God is just. This means that God is right and perfect in all that he does. Number 11, God is merciful. He is infinitely and unchangeably compassionate and kind. Number 12, God is gracious. This means that God is infinitely inclined to spare the guilty. Number 13, God is loving. This means that God is infinitely and unchangingly loving us. Number 14, God is holy, means that he's infinitely and unchangingly perfect. And then number 15, God is glorious. This means that he's infinitely beautiful and great. Now, I don't know about you, but this week I've meditated many times on those attributes of God. When a moment of fear seemed to grab my heart, when I wasn't sure what to think about what's going on in this world, these amazing attributes of God bring us back time and time again to a place of comfort and to a place of peace during times of trouble. The best thing you could do would not be to FaceTime a friend or to talk to another person, but to talk directly to God. That's the beauty of this high priestly prayer. Jesus is bringing you into an intimate relationship with him. And of course, we want to encourage all the social networking with other people to pray together. We just talked about that in our announcement time, but I'm just saying there's nothing like communing with God. 
There's nothing like understanding that he is supreme. He is above all. And the best way that God reveals himself to us is not just the list of attributes that I just read to you, but it's through his son, Jesus Christ. If you want to see the father, then look to the son. Jesus embodied those attributes better than anybody else. Jesus is perfect and he is divine and he is filled with all wisdom and he is filled with all power. And if you want to be close to the father, then you've got to be close to the son. Because when you're close to the son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the closest place that you could ever be to the father. Jesus told us the words of God. He lived out the decree of God. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the fullness of God dwelling bodily. Jesus is the radiance and the glory of God. So again, if you want to see the Father, look to the Son. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only does Jesus reveal God's character to his disciples, but he also, and we're moving now to our next blank, not only does he reveal God's character, but he also reveals this, this truth, B in your outline, you are a gift, you are a gift. Look at verse six, where it says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me. And so after Jesus prays about how he's wanting to reveal the attributes of God to his disciples, he's wanting to reveal to his disciples that each one of them is a precious gift given by the Father and given to the Son. We see this language really throughout this chapter, chapter 17. Look back at verse 2 with me, if you will, where it says, The Father has glorified the Son by giving him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Look at verse 9. I am praying for them, Jesus says. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Look down at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. I just want to know from you this morning, how does that make you feel to know that you are a gift from the Father to the Son? I think that's an amazing thought to think about this morning, that if you are in Christ today, you are a gift from God the Father to God the Son. I mean, if that's true in your life, don't you ever say that nobody loves me. Don't ever say that my life doesn't matter. If you're in Christ today, don't ever say I don't have any value. Don't ever say that you aren't loved by anybody. You are loved by God. And you are a gift from God the Father to God the Son, who get this, after the Son dies on the cross, purchases eternal life, he then gives us as a love gift back to the Father. This is a, an amazing concept. The Father gives us to the Son the son accomplishes redemption for those that he, uh, that he saves through repentance and faith in him and through the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he offers us back as a precious gift to the father. I mean, Jesus says uh, something similar to this in John 6, 37. He says, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Every single person in this world whom the Father has given to the Son, 
will come to the Son, and Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This verse teaches us that all that the Father gives to the Son will come. And at the same time, from our vantage point, this points us to that encouragement that whoever comes to Christ will by no means be cast out. The first part of that verse emphasizes God's sovereignty, where it says all those given by the Father to the Son will come. The second part of that verse emphasizes, in a sense, a little bit of a human responsibility, the fact that all who come, you must come this morning, you must come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the good news is, if you come, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you're going through, if you come to him, he will not, he will not cast you out. He will receive you as his own. And that's how you know that you are actually a gift. If you come to him, it is proven that you are a gift given by the Father to the Son from eternity past. I mean, we're really talking here about the doctrine of election. It's a beautiful doctrine. It's a grand doctrine. It's a doctrine throughout the whole Bible. And we see here that we have no idea from our vantage point who the Father gives to the Son, except that by watching how people live and how they walk in obedience to Him, then we start to get a picture of those people must have been given by the Father to the Son because now we see them walking in obedience and Jesus is holding them tight and they will never be cast out. I mean, one of the beauties of being a Christian is you, you can't get out of the club. I mean, it's not a club, right? I mean, you didn't get in by joining on your own. You got in as a gift from the Father to the Son. And when you came, you were received, but you'll never be cast out. You didn't come on your own, and you can't get kicked out on your own. If you're a believer, if you've been elected by the sovereign grace of God, you're His for all eternity. And I just want to remind you that you did not come in your own power. You came according to God's power. Did you come on your own merit? No, you, you came through Christ's merit. Did you come with pride? No, you must come with humility. Did you come all put together? No, you, you came as a broken human being. Did you come to God with anything else in your hand? Well, if you did, you have to drop that because only God can be front and center in your life as a true believer in him. And when you come, you have to come by faith. And when you come, you come through genuine repentance. And when you come, you come believing that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that he was raised from the dead. There's no other way that you will ever make it to the Father. And then Jesus says in John 6, 39, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but I will raise it up on that last day. I mean, I think it's pretty amazing again that this gift was given, that this gift will never be lost, that this gift, the church, believers in Christ, will be raised on that last day. I mean, if you, if you look around you, there, there are many gifts. Every person is a gift, and there are more gifts, people are gifts. There are more gifts to be gathered into the church. In fact, God told Paul in Acts 18.10, for I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. That's a great missions verse, really talking about how Paul is on the mission field and he's being reminded by Jesus as you go out and do missions, as you go out into this culture to share the gospel, there are many there are many more gifts that the Father's already given to the Son. You're a gift. 
Your neighbor might be a gift. That schoolmate that you uh, interact with might be a gift. We don't know yet, but we do know that there are many in this place. And from this, I believe that there are many in Santa Clarita who are gifts from the Father to the Son. And we have the opportunity to participate in the harvest by going out, especially in times like this, and calling people back to God, calling people into a genuine love relationship with God. I believe there are many more people in Los Angeles. I believe there are many more people in America. I believe that there are many more people in this world who right now, maybe more than ever, God has their attention. And it's during times of crisis and times of trial that I find that hearts are soft and they're ready to hear maybe truth that they're usually rejecting and they're usually distancing themselves from truths about religious things. But at this moment, you have a window. You have an opportunity. God calls them. He gives them. You have the opportunity to just beseech them, to just, to just share with them how you're getting through this time by your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we ought to be doing. We ought to be capitalizing at this moment on the opportunity to realize that every single person is a gift. Every single person that God chooses, he's given to the Son, and he's appointed eternal life to them. They're a special gift from the Father to the Son, and you may not know who those people are, but we're called to go call all of them, every person that you see, to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful reminder that God's disciples are gifts You're a gift this morning. I want you to go out and find others who need to be brought into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ so that they could be reminded that they too are loved. Well, let's move on to see what distinguishes God's people from ordinary people. See, there in your outline, says this, God's people keep God's word. The blank there is the word keep. God's people keep God's word. God's word. Look at the end of the verse. Verse six is the one that we're in. And it says that uh, he, he gave them to me and they have kept your word. We see that when God saves you, he changes you. And when God gives you as a loved gift to his son, he transforms you. And God accepted you just as you are. And he also renews you into a brand new person and into the person that he's called you to be. Make sure you understand that. He accepts you and he loves you just like you are. But when he saves you, he wants to transform you. You cannot stay in that same place. If God changes your life and you believe in him by faith, you become a brand new person. That means that you begin to put off old sinful habits and you begin to walk in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, make sure you understand obedience to God's word is not a prerequisite to salvation, but it is the result of true saving faith. Once you have been saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, then you change courses from the way of the wicked to the way of the righteous. It's like Psalm 1, 1 that says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the water 
that, that, it, that, that he'll always bear fruit, right? That he, he yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That's what happens to the believer. To the believer who's in Christ, he's a brand new, he or she is a brand new person in the Lord Jesus Christ. And too many times, religious people who are legalistic get confused. You are not made holy by your walk, but by your faith. You are not justified by works, but by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. First comes faith, then comes the obedience that you walk in out of your love for God, out of your devotion to him, because you're a brand new person. It's like what Galatians 2, 16 says. It says, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we say, hey, you cannot be saved by keeping God's law. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. So we can also, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because of the works of the law, no one will be justified. Again, he says it like three times in that one verse, you cannot be saved by keeping the law. No one will ever be saved by holding on to the Bible externally. That's not how you're saved, by holding on to God's truth. No one will ever be saved by righteous acts of obedience. No one will ever be saved because they go to a church or they're a Baptist or a Methodist or a Presbyterian. No one will ever be saved by being a part of a local church uh, body. No one will ever be saved because they believe that they're a good person. No one will ever be saved by doing good things. But God's people who are saved by faith alone in Christ alone will do good works. They will keep God's word. It will be the, the projection of their life, the orientation of their life, the trajectory of their life is they will walk in obedience. That's what Christians do. It's what Jesus said earlier in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I mean, if there's one verse that our world needs to hear today to just clarify what it means to have faith and to walk in the truth, it's this verse. People all over the place, I love God, I love faith. A lot of people even say, I love Jesus. And yet they're living like the devil. They're continuing in their sin with no remorse and no repentance. And yet Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Again, in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. The truth is there is an inevitable connection between salvation and sanctification. There is an unbreakable bond between faith and works. There is a natural progression from believing by faith into now a life of living by faith. And this is seen so clearly throughout the pages of Scripture. It's James 2.17, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So in other words, the Ephesians 2, 1 through 9 is like, it's by grace through faith, by grace through faith, by grace through faith. And then in verse 10, he's like, so that you do good works. That faith needs to be put into action. It's what we read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now 
not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now that verse is, is saying that basically all those passages out of Galatians and out of Ephesians, Philippians, in fact, all of those epistles, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, and here in Philippians, they all talk a lot about grace and they all talk a lot about obedience and they all do a wonderful job balancing those two truths by saying, if you're a believer, you're gonna walk in obedience. If you're a believer, you're gonna walk with him. And so in that Philippians 2, 12 and 13, when it says to work out your own salvation, basically what he's saying is, if you, 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 that's how you prove your love to God. You prove your love to God by obeying what he says. Again, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's like, it's like how can I prove my love to my wife? been married 16 years, love my wife, she's a blessing, I'm so thankful for her, and how could I, how can I love her? You know, if I just tell her all day long that I love her, but I don't serve her by getting up off the couch or by helping out around the house or by digging deep to have conversations of meaning and of value, if I don't show her by sacrificing other things in my life that she's my number one, then it's really just lip service. I need to not only tell her I love her, I love you, babe, but I also need to show her I love her by doing so many other things. And it's not just the, all the chores that you do around the house and bringing home the bacon. That's what a lot of husbands get caught up into doing, like, well, I go to work and I bring home a paycheck and you know I take care of the yard. Listen, that's important, but it's just as important for you to be violently connected to her through conversation that you would talk with her and interact with her and engage with her in ways that would connect with her heart. She wants you to do more than just bring home the bacon. She wants you to connect with her by talking and communicating and interacting with her. And you have a chance to do that more now than ever, right? More now than ever. I mean, there's, there's opportunity while we're all at home for friction, and there's also opportunity while we're all at home just to have great fellowship, great conversations, great opportunities to reconnect and rekindle in ways that you've never imagined. Well, I don't know how I got off on all that other than I love my wife. And I think that that's an example. Again, if we love God, we're going to be walking with him, obeying him. And that's part of how we prove our love for him by what we do. And let's move on, if we can, to verses 7 and 8, where we read here that God gives gifts to the son. He gives gifts to the son. Verses seven and eight says, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. All right, we're talking about how God gives gifts to the Son. If it wasn't clear before, now it's crystal clear that Jesus had told his disciples everything. He had held nothing back. If somehow the disciples weren't clear about the fact that Jesus had received from the Father everything and had now given it to the, the disciples, now they know. I mean, Jesus had received everything from the Father. First of all, Jesus himself is a gift of God. According to John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave 
his only son, Jesus Christ, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so Jesus is a gift from God giving himself. Second of all, the disciples now know that everything given to the son is from the father, whether it be all authority, whether it be the responsibility to be the judge, whether it be power over demons or power over disease or power over death, this was all given to the Son by the Father. And then third, it's the words that Jesus had spoken were also a gift from God. Here in John 17, look down at verse 14, Jesus says, I have given them your word. Jesus said in John 8, 26, I declared to the world what I have heard from him. Or how about what Jesus said in John 12, 49? For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the authority comes from the Father who sent me. He himself has given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. Now, this isn't saying that somehow Jesus had no divinity and somehow God gives him divinity and then Jesus gives to us. He's more or less just saying, I'm connected to the Father. I, I'm in line with the Father. I'm not doing my own thing and the Father doing his own thing. The Father chooses whom he'll save. The Father gives the Son as a gift to provide salvation to those that he gives his life for in order that we can be brought into a, a permanent relationship with him. There's a connection here between how the Father gives to the Son and the Son now gives to us. And for sure, Jesus has fully revealed the Father's name to his disciples, and there's nothing that he's held back. He's, he, he's only got the last part. I mean, it's on the last night before he dies, right? So there's only suffering, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension that's left. I mean, so far, so good as far as Jesus fully fulfilling his mission. Did you know that as a present follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Father's name has been fully revealed to you in the same way? Just like Jesus is saying, I've manifested your name to the disciples, and I've shown them everything that you've given me is a gift to them, that he could be saying the same thing to you this morning. There's nothing that you're lacking. There's no gift that you don't have through Christ and his word. There's nothing that you've not seen about his nature. You understand that. There's no attribute of God that's not recorded in scripture that you don't know about. Everything that you need to know about God and his goodness and his love for you and his power and his might, you can see it broadly through creation but you can see it in a special way through the revelation of the word of God, which paints a picture of exactly who God is, so much so that there's nothing lacking at all. And that's why I think we gotta be careful about some in the church today who are always seeking more, wanting more gifts or maybe even more miracles or more revelation. And some Christians will try to reach uh, uh, beyond the Bible and outside of scripture to somehow get more from God. And I'm just cautioning you, church, that the best gift you could ever receive is Christ. The best gift that you could ever receive is Christ, the living word, the scriptures that reveal everything that you need to know. And anytime anybody starts to tell me something like, well, I was in prayer or I was in meditation and God started to tell me this and God started to reveal this to me and this to me, I just kind of get a little cautious. Like, well, what do you mean God's revealing that to you? Do, do you mean he's reminding you of truth in the Bible? Then we're all good. But if they start to come up with new doctrine, new revelation, new commands, new descriptions of God that aren't in the Bible, watch out because everything that we need to know about God is right here in the Bible. He gives gifts to the Son 
everything that he's given to the son, the son is given to us and we lack nothing. There's nothing else that we need. It's all right here. Contentment is found right here. True peace is found right here. Everything you need in your life is found right here. Open up the Bible and read it and meditate on it. It's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Continue to commune with God through his word. And if we just can focus on that, I believe this coronavirus thing can set you up for the biggest spiritual revival in your life. My goodness, you have an opportunity now more than ever to meditate, memorize, and to soak in the word of God into your heart, into your family. I hope that you're taking the opportunity to do just that. There's nothing lacking. There's nothing lacking. It's all right here. Let's move on. Now that we've seen how Jesus reveals the Father and the Father's name to the disciples, let's look at our second major heading. Number two, Jesus prays specifically for his disciples. And your next blank says this, praying for those given to him, praying for those given to him. Verse nine, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those who you have given me, for they are yours. Now here in verse nine, Jesus prays specifically for his disciples. Listen, he is not praying for everyone in the world. Not in this verse. He is not praying for the lost. He is not praying for everybody. He is praying for the elect. He is praying for those that he has chosen out of this world. He is praying for those who have repented and those who have followed Jesus Christ. He is praying for his disciples. Now, nowhere does the Bible teach that we shouldn't pray for the lost. That's just not the focus of Jesus' prayer in John 17. This is a high priestly prayer for God's people. Jesus is the high priest who entered into heaven as our risen sacrifice. And in this verse, he is praying for us. In fact, Hebrews 10 says that uh, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and in full assurance of faith. It's because Jesus died in our place because Jesus paid our penalty, because Jesus provides salvation for his own, he is now interceding as our high priest. If you're in Christ in this prayer, he's praying for you. Now, it is true that God does show a kind of love to all the people of the world. We call this common grace. In a general way, the kindness of God is extended even to those who reject the gospel. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 5.45, For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. That means the sun is out for all people. The rain comes to all people, whether you're a child of God or you're not. That's a general display of God's common grace. At the same time, we understand that Jesus is praying for those who do not know Christ, and he does that in a couple of times. In fact, in uh, Matthew 11, 28, he's speaking to the Pharisees in that particular context, and he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, a lot of times we think about that verse for the Christian who's overwhelmed with so much to do, and we just need his help. In the context, it's really Jesus speaking more to Pharisees 
who are trying to accomplish salvation by doing more external things. And Jesus is saying, that's not how you're saved. So we say, hey, come to me if you're tired of trying to get to heaven on your own. If you're tired of trying to be a good Catholic. If you're tired of trying to be a good Jew. If you're tired of trying to be a good Muslim. If you're tired of trying to be a good whatever system-based works that you're following, Jesus is saying, no, 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 come unto me and I will give you rest. I will give you salvation by faith in himself. That's how we have eternal life. And so he does pray for the lost in that sense when he says, come unto me, all you who labor. Didn't it, it wasn't it Jesus who taught us, by the way, a second place where he does pray for the non-elect is when he says uh, that we need to, um, Matthew 5, 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So we can assume that those who are persecuting Christians are not believers. And yet Jesus says, you need to pray for them. So I'm just saying that the Bible doesn't teach you exclusively only pray for Christians. Of course, we need to pray for the world. Of course, we need to pray for the lost. In fact, Jesus modeled that in Luke 23, 34, where Jesus said to those who are crucifying him on the cross, he said, what? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's a prayer from Jesus to the Father for those who are crucifying him that, that maybe God would have mercy on their souls and some of them maybe did come to Christ. Certainly the centurion who watched the whole thing happen said, surely this must be the son of God. So that's at least one person who's, who, who, who maybe got saved while they watched uh, what happened to Jesus. So there are times where Jesus prays for unbelievers. But this prayer, back to John 17, this prayer because people always ask, well, can we pray for the world? So hopefully that answered that question. But this prayer is a prayer of our high priest praying for his disciples, to those who belong eternally to him, because they have been given to him by the Father. In this verse, Jesus specifically says, I am not praying for the world. In this verse, Jesus is praying for his disciples. He's praying for those who have been given to him by the Father. So Jesus is praying for those given to him specifically in your next blank here, B says, praying that he has been glorified in them. Jesus is praying that he has been glorifying in him. Verse 10, all of mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. This is just Jesus acknowledging that he has been glorified in these disciples. When Jesus says, all mine are yours and all yours are mine, this is just another clear statement about his deity and his unity between the Father and the Son. That all that belongs to the Father belongs to the Son and all that belongs to the Son belongs to the Father. We sometimes think of this concept of, uh, as our inheritance. And maybe your dad has said to you at some point, or your mom, hey, honey, all that I have will belong to you. It'll all be yours when we die. Or maybe you said to your kids, hey, everything that we have is going to be yours when we die. So take good care of it. And we think about that sometimes. All that I have belongs to you. But when Jesus is saying this, he's not talking about material possessions. When Jesus is saying, all that I have belongs to the Father, and all that the Father has belonged to me. They're not talking about houses or cars or 401k accounts. They're talking about something more precious. They're talking about people. In this context, they're talking about all the people that I've created, that I've given to the Son, and all the people that the Son has redeemed, that he's giving back to the Father. This is God's inheritance, if you will. It's, it's you. 
and that he gives you to the Son, the Son gives you to the Father. Those who belong to the Father belong to the Son, and vice versa. It's what Jesus says in John 16, 15, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 23, and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. 1 Corinthians 15, 23, Christ is the first fruits, then at his coming are those who belong to Christ. Again, when we talk about the inheritance of God, if you will, there's more of a focus on the people that he's redeeming that become that precious gift to him. Jesus will be glorified in his disciples. And he is glorified when you obey him. He is glorified when you honor him. He is glorified when you praise him. He is glorified when you trust in him. He is glorified when you listen to him. He is glorified when you walk with him. He is glorified when you worship him with all that you are. That's what this verse is saying at the end. All of mine are yours and yours are mine. And then it says again that I am glorified in them. And so let me ask you, this morning, is Jesus being glorified in you this coronavirus season? Is Jesus being glorified in all of your time and in all of your efforts and in all of your heart and in all of your moments and all of your days? Is Jesus more of the Lord of your life this week than he was last week? Are you desperate for a deeper intimacy with him? Are you using your free time wisely? Are you on your knees? Are you fostering faith-filled conversations in your house? Are you storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven? Are you feasting at his table? Are you loving the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength? Are you loving your neighbor as you love yourself? What a great reminder this morning that we are to be glorifying God in every single aspect of our lives. And I believe we have the opportunity to do that even in a greater way during times of trial. Well, let's move to our final heading this morning if we can. Number three, Jesus keeps all of those given to him by the Father. Not only are you a gift from the Father to the Son, but the Father keeps you and he hands you off in such a way that we could say your next blank there is the word perseverance for that doctrine that we know and love called perseverance of the saints. Sometimes in the doctrines of grace, we understand this is that fifth doctrine, the perseverance of the saints, verse 11, where Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, in this verse, verse 11, I believe that Jesus is saying, I'm getting ready to leave the world, and that through his death and his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus will be departing from this world and no longer living in the world as he has been for the last 33 years. But the disciples will most definitely continue living in the world. They're not going anywhere. And the future of the church lies entirely within their hands. And they are to live in the world, but to not be of the world. The world would hate them. The world would persecute them. The world would tempt them to fall away. But the world will not succeed. The world is powerless 
to pull down a true saint. The world is incapable of jeopardizing God-given faith, which is given to a true disciple. The world can make a lot of noise, but it cannot snuff out the church. The world can ridicule the disciples. The world can scoff the disciples. The world can mock the disciples, but the world cannot make the disciples give up their faith. And Jesus is praying to the Father, and Jesus prays here, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Jesus uses the word holy to describe his father in contrast with the wickedness of the world. The father is holy and without sin and is perfect in every way. The world is wicked, full of sinful pursuits and totally depraved. This is a complete separation between light and darkness, between righteousness and lawlessness, between life and death. And Jesus wants to make it clear that his father, the God of the universe, is perfectly holy and in him there is no darkness at all. And so he prays to his father, holy father, keep them from the evil one. That's not exactly what he says in this part, but keep them, what does he say? Keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. And the word keep here means to retain. It means to guard. It means to watch over his own. This is Jesus praying that God would hold them tight, that God would persevere with his disciples in the midst of a difficulty and in the midst of any storm. It's the same word used at the end of verse six. Look back at verse six when it says, and they have kept your word. So we've been talking about true disciples keep God's word but God's going to keep them. So it goes both ways. God keeps us, and as God keeps us, then we're able to keep his word. And when God keeps us, that means that nothing can take us out of his hand. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. I like to think of the example of a father I'm a dad. I got five kids. A lot of you have kids out there today. And you think about as a dad or as a mom when you're taking a walk, imagine a father walking maybe with his three-year-old son. And if he were to be walking next to a train track, imagine that as all of a sudden the whistle of the train is approaching, that the son is holding on to the father. But it's the father's hold, his firm grasp. It's gentle, and yet it's very firm. It's the father's grasp of the son's hand that would give me a lot more confidence that that son's not gonna somehow dart out into the train track in the middle of a, of a scary uh, train whistle being blown at the moment the train passes by. So we're holding onto the father's hand, but if you've had kids, you trust way more in your grip of that kid's hand than you trust in that kid to hold on to your hand. And I'm just saying, that's what the father's doing with us. We're holding on to the father with all that we are, but our grips sometimes loosen. But the father's grip never loosens. He holds us with such security and such firmness that he will never let go. You will never, if you're held in the father's hand, be able to somehow slip out and fall into the train track. That'll never happen to the true Christian who walks with God. We're talking here about the perseverance of the saints. And sometimes we think of that as an emphasis on us, but it starts with an emphasis on God. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints starts with the fact that once God saves you, he preserves you and he will never let you go. 
And because he preserves you and he will never let you go, you will persevere by walking in the works that God's called you to do. In fact, listen to just a couple of theological definitions just to prove my point, if I can. Wayne Grudem, well-known theologian, defines perseverance of the saints like this. He says, quote, all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives, and only the ones who persevere to the end have been truly born again. So again, it starts with the Father preserves you, and as he preserves you, you will persevere, and the way that you know you're preserved by the Father is that you will persevere to the very end, not just for a year, not just for five years, not just for 10 years, but for your whole life, you'll continue to walk with God until the very end. I I like MacArthur's biblical doctrine book. He adds to this definition, quote, while all true believers are sovereignly preserved in their salvation by the almighty power of God. Again, listen to how both of those definitions start off with it's God's responsibility to preserve you. And then it says his sovereignty in no way eliminates their responsibility to persevere in faith throughout their lives. So again, the Father preserves us and we persevere. He holds on to us, we hold to him. When our grip starts to let go, he grips us even tighter and he pulls us back into that intimate relationship with him. Jesus clearly taught on the perseverance of the saints in John 15, verses five and six. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you are a Christian, then you are abiding in Jesus, and he is abiding in you. And apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. And if you are not abiding in the vine, then you are not a branch that bears fruit, showing that you're really persevering. Instead, that you're a branch, if you're not bearing fruit, that will be gathered and thrown into the fire. If you are not consistently keeping God's word and living for him, then it could be that you're not a Christian. In fact, I would say if you are living in rebellion against God and in unrepentant sin, and you're not bearing the fruit of a believer, then you have no hope of eternal life. Christians are not perfect, but they do walk in obedience. Christians are not without their struggles, but they are daily confessing their sin and walking close to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the way that you can confirm your calling and your election is by walking in obedience and making every effort to walk in the truth, to obey God with a pure heart, to be actively growing in your faith and in your practice. It's not about perfection, but it's about direction. It's about the direction of your life. Am I today pursuing God and walking with him and in light of his word? All right, one final blank here as we're playing with the lights with you a little bit. That one final blank with you is this. That last blank says perversion of the son of destruction. Perversion of the son of destruction. How does this end? Well, verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and none of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. All right, now I said he's keeping everybody.
who's a true Christian. Guess what? There was one of Jesus' disciples who was not a true Christian. All of those whom Jesus guarded did stay true to the faith. Not a single person departed. But Judas did defect. Judas was not protected by God's power. Judas was never a true follower of Jesus, and Judas never had true faith. So when he says, all of those are protected by me will stay with me, that's what he meant. But there was one who Jesus never protected and who all, all, all from the beginning had a different plan in mind. And when the, when the Bible talks about this, oftentimes we look at 1 John 2.19, and it says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Isn't, isn't that what happened to Judas? We thought he was one of the disciples. He kept the money bag. Of course, the gospels give us hints throughout the gospel that he would keep some of that money for himself and he didn't want Jesus to give to the poor because he was the treasurer and he was a thief and all of this. But we understand that externally, he did look like he was a Christian until the day that he just walked away and he denied um, his association with Jesus and even at the beginning of the Last Supper, Jesus said in John 13, 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate, he, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. In other words, Jesus is saying, there, he's referencing there um, Psalm 41, verse 9. And he's saying, hey, there's one here in our midst, who is going to even eat bread with me, but he is not part of me. Uh, the, the Bible predicts this. It, it, there's prophecies about Judas's defection. Psalm 109, verse 8, may his days be few, and may another take his office. Acts 1, 16, after the, um, the, uh, the ascension, uh, the disciples got together and they said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before him by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested him. So what we're saying is this, God's prophecies always come true. Judas did not catch God or Jesus by surprise. He did what he did as a fulfillment of scripture. It was always a part of God's plan. It was always a part of God's plan, but just because it was part of God's plan does not mean that at the same time, Judas was not personally responsible for his sin. He was personally responsible for his sin. There's that tension again between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But the Bible teaches that both are true. What Judas intended for evil, God intended for good. In fact, God would use the most horrific event in human history, the crucifixion of his son, as the means by which he would atone for the sins of the elect. What an amazing prayer. This high priestly prayer of Jesus really is. It's a prayer of revelation. It's a prayer of divine theology. It's a prayer of intercession. It's a prayer of the fulfillment of scripture. And I hope that you've been encouraged to, to know today that just as Jesus prayed for his disciples, he's praying for you. He, was, he has revealed uh, the character of God to us. We know that everyone uh, that Jesus, uh, what we know that everyone Jesus has was from the Father. Jesus has given us the Father's words. Jesus is praying for his followers that we would be kept in his name and that we would all be one. I'm going to touch on that one little phrase there next time, that we would all be one. And uh, we, we could be one today as a church. 
here in our living rooms, here, wherever you're abiding this morning, wherever you're staying today, I just want you to know that Jesus knows your hurt, he knows your pain, and he's interceding and praying for you. And your job is to persevere. He's going to hang on to you and preserve you. Your job is to continue to persevere day by day in prayer, day by day leaning on the mercy of God, day by day being reminded that you have a high priest. Remember, just like Aaron prayed for the Jews way back in Exodus, that's how Jesus, to a much greater degree, is praying for you. Be encouraged today. Meditate on this chapter today, and I pray that you'll take some time and maybe work through these take-home questions and some of the questions there that are on the download outline. Maybe as a family, you can take a little time uh, around the table at lunch or whatever you're doing this afternoon and kind of flesh out some of these questions and some of these cross-references a little bit more as you consider the fact that Jesus is praying for his disciples. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for the time to, uh, to preach the word, to be encouraged by the truths that we see here in the scripture. And I pray as we sing this one last song that you would just encourage our hearts and allow us to worship you throughout this day and throughout this week like never before. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.